Welcome to the Change Africa podcast. This is where we have trillion conversations with the change leaders who are the helm of the African transformation. And today I have my friend and somebody I admire together with Daniel here to do the podcast. And we are talking about African transformation. We are talking about people that are building the communities that we grew up in. And we have none other than Banasko Nuhuseidu and Usma Omar, who have founded great um, nonprofit organizations and now tech um um startups but also we have people who have written books here we have people that have changed the lives of thousands of people together with me and daniel kukumeki we are going to be exploring the impact story of these two individuals and how they've shaped the communities they're growing and how they're taking that impact globally so welcome to the change africa podcast banasto and usma Welcome. Thank you very much, Isaac, for this opportunity. I think it's really wonderful to see a kind of one, a special progress in this aspect, in this podcast. So I'm really proud and glad to be here. Great. Vasco, what about you? <laughs> <laughs> and you've wanted me on this podcast and I've equally wanted to be on it for a while. So I'm happy that uh, I'm on. <laughs> yeah, I mean... So we started knowing each other for, I think I was still in the university, right? I was in level 300 in the university. No, actually I was in level 200. Um, I knew a friend who knew you and we were just all interested in helping out, building projects and we got to know each other. But it was eventually that I knew that you guys were building something that was beyond just, you know, a normal nonprofit. It was something that was going global. Can you take us back, um, Usman, to what started this journey of the nonprofit um, as far back as before traveling even to Spain? Yes, thank you, Isaac and Daniel. Um, definitely the idea of NASCO Feeling Minds started, as we just mentioned, before I even came to Europe. I think in my community where we grew up, definitely education was a very a big handicap. Um, I even remember during my childhood, we normally had to walk about seven miles, four, sorry, four miles to go to the next village where uh, we were capable, there were school for us, for us to be able to get education. So definitely, I think um, that was something that really marked me and in, like, in a sense that we didn't have access to education during, that, during my childhood childhood and I think the need and the curiosity to know more to be able to do something even though um, the possibility the opportunities are not there since I was a child was something that I've always experienced and at my will to do something over that so I think the idea of the organization or creating NASCO Freedom Minds NGO even started before I went to Europe yeah, but you in that community, um, you decided to travel. You decided to go and become better. What was the current environment that it persisted at the time? What was around you? What was the ambitions of people? What triggered you to take on a journey? And for the average you who doesn't know, you went on a journey. I, I hope I, I would give you the opportunity to talk about. But 
you went on a very dangerous journey, a journey that most people don't survive. What triggered you to the point that you didn't think there was any opportunity around you to stay? Yes, the fact is that, as I mentioned, I came from a very poor community whereby farming was the main activity around and there was no any opportunity to do anything else. So, yes, the fact is that um, staying back in my community was only, the only opportunity for me was farming, just because I couldn't, uh, there was no option to go to school. And so I think one of the most important things that triggered me to move out from my village was, I was very curious and I really wanted to do something. So definitely I left my village very young and I went to the near city to learn street and welding. And by times goes by, I realized that <laughs> the best I could do was try to find means and ways to um, fulfill my curiosity, the needs to know more. But I never knew the risk and the dangerousness that I had to pass through before going, uh, achieving that. And the most sadness part of the situation is that almost 90% of my friends with whom I started the journey lost their lives, both on the desert, the, uh, in the presence of Libya or in the Mediterranean Sea. So finally, I realized that definitely that wasn't the truth, that wasn't the right way. So the best I could do, was trying to do all my best to get access to education and of course, try to find ways to create something back home, at least in my um, opinion, in my points of view, finding mechanisms to provide young people down there to get access to education so they could fulfill their curiosities. And of course, through, uh, let's say, IT education today in the modern world, you don't need to move from your home to be able to impact and, do, and create opportunity for yourself. Online, today, you can do it, being no matter where you are. Yeah, so, Banasco, where were you at that time? At a time where um, Osman was trying to do all these things, where were you? <laughs> <laughs> we probably might have the artist man that was Banasco at the time because it's most <laughs> likely you would know that I might know him myself but um, of course I mean um, as a senior brother um, he wasn't too um, um, I mean um, um, too far from me at the beginning we all grew up in the same village and I observed him closely as uh, the days went by I remember very well when they used to walk several kilometers with other uh, friends of his to school and all that. So, uh, yes, I watched closely, but I was ignorant of a lot of the things that were going on at the time. I mean, especially I remember when he went on to the next city to learn through the world. And of course, he comes back home and we think a star has come home, especially when he's coming and he's able to buy a few things for you, you know. So, yes, uh, it was a beautiful moment for me. I mean, I mean at that time, um, very ignorant of the realities of the world. I mean, you were only enjoying the moment. And of course, uh, for so many years, when he went on the journey, I didn't know. I mean, of course, he wouldn't tell anybody he's going on such a journey. So for a very long time, I didn't know where he was. Some way, somehow, I was comfortable. I thought that maybe he was in the city uh, working his usual stuff. So until one day, all of a sudden, we heard that he he sent a letter or something that he was in Libya. I was like, ooh. <laughs> oh, okay. So yes, I was also in the village. I grew up, we grew up in the same village. And like you said, I mean, a typical farming community, um, going to school was a mixed feeling. It was more, it was a bit of an opportunity. And in another uh, bread, it was um, an, an, an activity that, in, that, that uh, was regarded as an activity for the week. 
So if you're going to school, that means you are lazy, you know, you don't want to go to the farm. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was um, the brief um, around myself at that time. Wow. Um, I mean, Daniel, you can chime in every time, but Osman, what was the process like? You know, let's take you a little into the journey before we come back. Banasco is telling us that there was one time you sent a letter. Tell us about that moment where after you've gone through that difficulty, right? You are sending a letter back home and what exactly you said in that letter? As a matter of fact, that it wasn't a letter. It was a okay. cassette, a recording cassette I made. Wow. Because it was almost impossible to, as he mentioned, our schooling wasn't so um, in a good position. So definitely it was difficult to acquire high level in reading and writing that time. So the little I had was quite enough, but not so to be able to write letters and all that. So definitely what I actually did was a recording, that old cassette. So uh, that was in Libya, in Benghazi, the second capital of Libya especially. And the whole, I wanted to let my people to know about me was that yes, I was alive, but I went through hell, real hell. God saved me out of that. It is a real miracle. So I hadn't, I just wanted to let them know I was alive, give thanks to God, and of course, let them know the hardest, the hell I went through and how all my friends lost their lives and in such a way to encourage them to keep on praying every day, day in, day out, and on the other hand, my interest was also to raise awareness for my younger brothers and sisters back home to know how difficult the ordeal was. But I think that wasn't really enough because that cassette was only for my close family and my younger brothers. But the real, the main mission was just to give a sign of a life that I was still in life because that time people, there was no way, there was no cell phones you can call in and every day to inform about what is going on and things like that. So definitely, I think it's, I stayed for two or three years without nobody knowing about my, my existence. Wow. And I send the cassette back home. So, so <laughs> okay. Um, I just wanted to understand. So the two or three years at that stage, you are still in Libya, if you understand it right. And you're already referring back to the hell you went through. So, but you're not yet at a destination. So was there any, th- <laughs> yes. So my, I'm just wondering, was there any thought of going back, giving up, settling in, in Libya, or you are approaching the next step to go towards your final destination differently than when you started out back in your village? The fact is that when I left Ghana, my idea wasn't going to Libya, right? I wanted to go to Europe. I had no means to go because that time I didn't even knew Ghana had a passport that time because I had my first passport in the black market in Libya. I never knew Ghana had, we had a passport in Ghana before I left. The only thing you needed was a yellow card, which was a yellow fever card that proved that you, didn't, you are free of yellow fever. That was the only important thing we needed. So yes, um, there are a lot of difficulties and controversies in the journey. And one other thing was that we was... The, 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 the human traffickers who leads us to 
uh, Agadez, and from Agadez to cross the, uh, the Sahara Desert, we get abandoned as middle of the desert. So I think people don't normally uh, uh, underline that topic, but that was one of the most difficult moments of life of, of the journey. Almost 100% of people who goes there, only 5% normally make it to Libya. So definitely when I get to Libya, just imagine getting to a country, Gaddafi was the dictator, being black in a life was living almost a crime. Every day running up and down, be hiding from police and all that. So definitely, once you you are capable to survive from the desert, then Libya is not even a paradise. It's still uh, it's from frying from frying pan to fire, more or less. The life experience in Libya. So definitely, my destination wasn't Libya at all. And of course, I stayed there for four years because that was the only way I could work, raise some money, and then fulfill my journey, which is the last part of my trip going to um, Europe. But I never knew uh, I was going to fall in hands of human traffickers again, because definitely once after four, five, after four years, you normally forgot what the experience was. Anyway, you, 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 you just take it for granted that, okay, this time I'm going to be more fortunate, you know, until you get into the trap again, once inside there, you realize that there was no, there's no way, way out. Either you arrived alive or you die on the way, but there was no way back once you get into that trap. Definitely, it's, it's sometimes hard to make all these remembrances and all that. But we thank God we are here and we are doing the best we can to at least give an opportunity for the younger ones to be able to, mm, I mean, make a good life for themselves back home. Um, yeah, we, we are sorry we are taking you back on this traumatizing journey. Um, but again, for the more appreciation of the people who are listening to the podcast, can you tell us about the day that you were living in your village, you know, where you were um, learning this world and thing? Tell us who are the people you went with um, and how did the journey start? Where did you start and how did it go through? You know, take us deeper into some of the See, horrors that happened. Yes, the fact is that I still remember my last time I left my village. I, that was, mm-hmm. I was with my younger sister, a friend of mine who still lives in the village. And it was a really sad moment because um, I, I just came from Kumase to visit my parents. And definitely that time, if anyone is learning street and world in the market in a, in a city, normally when you go home, your parents get you some money, some at least some food stuff, so you go back. So for the first month, at least you normally have some money to be able to sustain yourself. And my situation was terrible enough that even a taxi from my village to the nearest city, I couldn't get any simple CD for that. And it was very sad, definitely. I still remember my sister accompanying me to the roadside crying because I could, nobody could get me just a pin. The situation wasn't easy at all, definitely. And when I went back to Kumasi, I realized that the best I could do was trying to risk my life, sacrifice my life at least to do something to help my younger brothers. So I know it wasn't easy going from Ghana to Libya, um, but I had some drivers who were also friends of mine. They used to drive these big trucks from Tema carrying salt to Niger. So I realized that the, I didn't have enough money, but the little I had, I could join these trucks so I would not have to pay the, uh, let's say, the fees from Ghana to Niger, Niamey, the capital of uh, Niger. So from there, the little money I had could therefore 
support me to Agadez and then to Libya. So um, I, the idea was like, okay, let me go to Libya. I can get some good work, sacrifice myself, risk my, my life, do some hard work, get, get some money, then find the opportunity to go to Europe to I thought that was the only way to make a good life myself. And of course, from my younger, from my brothers and sisters at the back of my family. Um, that time, I think normally we all know a little bit about Europe was like the solution. Europe is the only option. Uh, white people are, deal, are leading everywhere. So the best you can do is going to Europe. And I would like to acknowledge or just to um, encourage our younger brothers and sisters back home to acknowledge that Ghana is one of the big, best countries you can live in. Um, Ghana is even more democratic than most countries in Europe, especially Spain. Um, though the situation is different, but Spain, they've had civil war. They had a dictator for almost 40, 40 years. And Ghana, you've never had a civil war. And sometimes we think that even though we've not had any civil war, the poverty we are living in is too harsh and we need to seek uh, for better lives in other countries. We don't acknowledge the truth that our country is one of the best countries in this earth. And instead of really going to somebody's country, what we need to do is to work for our country to become a better place for our children and our grandchildren coming in the near future. So that was my big mistake I made, thinking that Europe was going to be the solution. And I ended up finally in this horrible trip, which definitely I hope to be able to overcome this someday, but it's not easy. Yeah. Um, so are there any details you can share? I mean, you don't have to, but are there any details you can share of your memories of the, of the trip? Um, See, I still remember in this big truck, we normally have to sleep over the salt on top of the trap, uh, this truck. And this one was going to Niger, right? This was going to Niger. When we get to Bolgatanga, the truck has a gearbox problem. We stayed there for almost three or four days before some mechanics come from Kumasi to repair it. I thought the journey was going to was going to astray. There was no way to fight. We were going, to, we, we were lost. But finally, things were capable to become normal again we continued until we get to the station i still remember the station in um Nyame, big tracks i mean it's a lot it was very very hot i've never felt that, that kind of hot in ghana before um i also remember my experience in when we stopped over in chad a village in chad and when you get we get down to buy some a bowl of rice you had about eight or nine ten children waiting for you to leave something for them to come and pick your bowl. So it was like, wow, at least in my village, I never went on bed with, without eating. Here, I can see real poverty, real poverty. And, but all these things doesn't discourage me from coming to come back, but rather just an experience to share with. So once we get to Niger, we continue to Agadez and from Agadez where we was, we fell in the first trap. I still remember the, the last border from Agadez to, this, uh, to, cross, to get to Agadez city and the police 
stopped us and they start asking for passports, yellow card, uh, this green, yellow cards, yellow fever cards and all that. So definitely I remember most people had that. I didn't have anything. And there was this guy, we called him Katavire. He was very big, tall guy, strong black African, I mean, Hausa guy. So um, he has everything. But they still, they, they just took a, 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 a little bit of sand. The policeman, the sujaman just took some sand like this and she, have you seen this? Yes, what is this? this is sand. He said, is this sand, a sand of Ghana? He said, no. He's telling me, okay, to walk over the sand, you have to pay, no matter what, how, whether you have all the documents or not, you have to pay some bribe before you work on that. And <laughs> this is what, just one of the thousands of um, situations we went through. I even remember one time too, they had to beat one of the guys just to prove to us that if you you still existing uh, persisting that you don't have money, what is going to happen to you is so they normally choose the biggest, strongest one in the group and beat him until he he just can uh, stand on his feet. So the, the, all the rest behind realize that no, no, you better give them money or you end up in the same way. So definitely, the situation is really really. And good. did you guys have money then? The little money you have, you have to have to share them among different different packets. So sometimes you just show that the the only money I'm left with is this. So in my case, I remember I was the most youngest among the group. I'm always the most smallest. So I think it helped me in some cases. However, in other cases, it was worst because I was the smallest. So Banasco, the time where you hear that your brother is in Libya. Yeah, you were joyous and all of that. What 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 was at that time you had grown? What um year were you in school? What was happening around you? And did you or were you more obvious of the challenges that were where you now? And could you then appreciate that this was a horrible thing that happened to my brother? Um well, um thank you, Isaac. I am um, well, I think that I had a, it was kind of a, like a mixed feeling. I really didn't know what I was thinking or what was right or wrong. And maybe some way, somehow, it was good for me. I, as I speak, I never got to listen to the audio he sent. Uh, interestingly, I think the audio came in when my grandfather had passed. So at the funeral, my uncle brought it. And I heard about it, like I said, but I, some way, somehow, I never got to listen to it. Maybe if I had listened to it, I mean, things would have been a bit more different, maybe worse off or better off, I don't know. But interestingly, I didn't get to hear it till date. So um i wasn't too sure of what the situation was with him so if you like it was a bit more of an excitement for me to hear that my brother was in libya I know. <laughs> and most especially i know when he gets there uh, he will say when he got to europe of course i was super excited and i wanted to go to europe said if i had heard the audio maybe it would have reshaped my worldview some way somehow but i never got to hear the audio so I mean, at Libya, it was a mixed feeling for me. But in Europe, I was super excited. I said I wanted to go. So, you know, <laughs> the funny thing here is that, you know, and that is what um, perpetuates the feeling and willingness for people to go, you know, because people don't share their stories and what happens in it. And so we just hear the idea of, okay, someone is here and we also want to go there. So I think it's very important that we're going to talk about how Osma has spent a lot of his time advocating against uh, migration to other countries through his books and advocacy. But this is Banasco, his brother, telling us that he was excited. Even after like audios and evidences have been sent, he was so excited because the framework of the people that are here is that, well, this is some paradise that people go to. And so no matter what you have to go through, but people don't get to understand that it's a traumatic experience that 
um, is it's going to change your life forever and you don't want to go through such an experience. So I want us to tell, I mean, I want Osman to tell us about how the second trap that he talks about. So now to your journey to Europe, you fell into um, another group of human traffickers, even though now you had experience, even though now you knew that those people existed and they could mess you up. What was that experience like before you finally got to Europe? Yes, the truth is that sometimes we mis- we misunderstand the word human traffickers or mafias. Yeah. Yes, the truth is that normally we had a, a wrong mistake of we create images about who these human traffickers or mafias are, and definitely the ideas we normally create in our head and the reality sometimes doesn't match. I can assure you that the same human traffickers who convinced me to trust them, whereby they end up abandoning, abandoning us in the middle of the Sahara Desert, was, wasn't have, uh, having AK-47 or any kind of guns like that. They were just normal uh, Arab uniform wearers, like, just like Islam, Muslims, basically. And the truth is that they didn't force anyone. They just convinced you that they are the right people to lead you to Libya. And once you pay the money to them, then of course you are in, you are in a, you are just um, captured. So you have no way to escape from the the mechanism because they normally seek you, take you to a specific uh, place where they camp all the the passengers until they get enough people. And with this uh, four by four trucks, which is this pickups, they carry you out to the desert whereby they normally package us as animals, basically. I still remember about 17, 18 people per each pickup. It was definitely a, 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 a huge, you know, so yes. So definitely in this second part, after almost four years living in Libya, especially Benghazi, when I was able to work to raise some money I finally went to Tripoli, whereby I felt in the hands of these human traffickers again. We was told they was taking us to uh, Spain, which was going to take no more than 45 minutes. Finally, we realized that it was once again a big trap because most of them have never been to Europe, have not crossed even from Libya to Morocco before. And those who have done it have maximum until the border of Morocco, but they've never crossed Morocco before. However, they convince you that they have done it and they're leading you through the path. Once you get into the trap, you pay them, they lead you until from Libya to Tunisia border. In Tunisia border, somebody also taking charge from Tunisia to Algeria. Algeria, somebody also takes different group people and they are not necessarily linked with the uh, previous ones. Not necessarily. So definitely it's a kind of situation where uh, you are always in hands of different people who have no any kind of sympathy to you. Yeah, and even so, if you like develop a relationship or you pay them money, it doesn't matter again. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So that's one of the most challenge, big challenges we normally face to pass through. So definitely when there's any kind of difficulties or any harsh, anything harshly from different group of police who have not received their, their part, and try to inter- come in, uh, they normally just abandon you and run away. So finally, you end up always uh, facing the consequences. From Libya to Mauritania, which is the Western Sahara, where we, we, we took the boat, it took us almost three months. 
Wow. Almost three months. And the truth is that it's, it's sad to see how our own brothers and sisters um, used us in this journey. It's really sad. But definitely, it seems like a war camp. So everybody just seek for his survival. Okay. Usman, just for context and understanding, because you mentioned your the journey, but just what are the timelines in terms from when you set off from your village? And then I know with the Libya part until you eventually the final destination. And what age were you? Um, definitely, I started the whole journey. I left Ghana very early, very early. It's sometimes um, complex to understand, but uh, the truth is that I left when I was less than 14 years. Hmm. So I crossed the whole journey. I get to Libya, Spain, about 18 years. Definitely, I was uh, finally, they, they, after the kind of scientific studies, they realized they, they get to the point that I was 17, 18 years, more or less. So it was better to be 17 than being 18 because being 18 means that they can deport me back to Ghana. And I didn't decide I wanted to be 18 or 17, but definitely uh, the results of the exam from the uh, hospital shows that I was between 17 and 18 years. And finally, uh, because there was no guarantee that I was more than 18, uh, the law, uh, human, the laws were pro- protects more minors than adults. Exactly, exactly. So I had a right to stay in Libya because I was a minor. Yeah, so but the, the breakdown again will be like from Ghana to Niger was how many months? It took us also two, 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 two to three months. Yeah, and then from Niger to... I Sorry, uh, from Ghana to uh, Niger took us three weeks, more or less. Okay. And from Niger to Libya, two, three, two, two months more, two and a half yeah. months. And then you stayed there for almost three years. Three, four years, and finally the second part to, to Spain. Took you about three months. Yeah. So totally, in total, it took me five years from Ghana to Spain. Wow. And this would be the, like a normal thing. Like if someone is trying to travel via the desert or via these means to any of these countries, Spain, Libya, or Europe, the final destination, it is not, well, a, a smooth journey. It is a year-long or multi-year-long journey. Is that like the regular thing that happens? Um, yes, because this this journey is not like you go to the VIP station, you buy a VIP <laughs> and it just takes you to Tamale or it takes you to Wa or uh, Kumase. That's not the way it works. So somebody will just tell you they're leading you to the next point and they will, they just you pay them and in the next two, three, three hours they disappear. You will stay for three, four, one month, and you will not come back again until you get a different person, or you are capable to work on anything you can do to be able to raise money to get the next this uh, money to pay for the next next point. So yes, it's quite complex in this aspect, but it doesn't. The timeline is varies depending on the situation. For example, even though once you get to the seaport, we get to the uh, Mauritania, Western Sahara, for example. We we have to manufacture the boats ourselves. Wow. We manufactured two different boats. In the first attempt, I think it took us almost three weeks to manufacture those boats. Pin them, we painted them hundred times to avoid water to come in with coats and all that. But even though in the sea, water comes in the boat. And the sadness part of the story is that the, the f- friends who took the second boat didn't have what wasn't so fortunate. So their boat sank and none, none of them survived. One of my best friends, Musa, died on that trip. 
on hundreds and of them who died in, in, uh, in the second part of it. I mean, definitely the situation is terrible. And the truth is that you never know when you are going to get to it. Yeah, exactly. You just never know. I mean, it's either you get there by some wild luck or you just don't. It's, a, it's a, just a miracle, definitely. It's a miracle. So you never know. You're only in a, a, in a stage that, okay, anything can happen to me, but you are prepared. If it's death, you, you, are already, you are prepared to die. And that's the sadness part. And I think if Ghana, we are having war and you are running away, then you are, even though if you stay, you are going to die. So if you move and die, that's okay. But Ghana, we are not having war. We are not dying. So being to this situation, definitely, I think, it's one of the the, the, the big problems. I think we need to enlighten here to prove to our younger brothers and sisters that yes, we should try not not falling in this uh, truth, a horrible journey to Europe, thinking that is the only option we have. We have a big opportunities in our hometown. Yes, but so, when you when you started off to going back from that, that means at that stage, all these things that you are mentioning now for you, those were not considerations. But did you did anybody warn you, or did you hear anything, or how did that work? The truth is that I didn't hear any warning, any alarm of the tragic situation it takes. I only knew very well that people say it was not difficult. It's not easy. It's difficult. You need to be very strong and tough and be convinced that you're going to make it. So those are the kind of recommendations or ideas spoken with other people who have a bit pity knowledge of other friends who have done it but nobody says that it was risky it was very very dreadful journey and i shouldn't go nobody warned me about that okay so you get to spain now what happens yes that's one one thing i also think is important people need to know because sometimes it's, we think that okay once i'm capable i'm lucky i even don't know how to swim and how to swim you have to stay on the, in the sea for almost two days, 48 hours, in my second attempt. In the first attempt, well, the second boat sank and more than 150 people died without any kind of explanation. You have, we returned back to the desert. We stayed for almost a month and a half until the, the human traffickers brought more people, materials. We manufactured two different boats. In the second attempt, the second boat, other, the other boat also sank in the middle of the sea. Once again, hundreds of Afghanians I think there was this guy called Alansa, Alansa Madudokunu, we called him that time. He's guy, and he was afraid of death, and unfortunately, he couldn't make it. He was a straighter in, in Accra. Once in Spain, we was in prison for almost two months. If you are a minor, you have opportunity to stay. Those, those who were uh, adults has to different process. But if you are considered a minor, you... After a month or two in the prison, they every day, they t- every week, they take you to hosp- different, different hospitals. They do some kind of analysis to verify that you are really, it's true that you are a minor or not. So after all this while, they, they normally think that we have some lawyers who defend, try to defend our rights. I never see any lawyer anyway. <laughs> so after this time, in my case, I was considered a minor, so I had the right to stay in Libya. For, I had my freedom to stay in, in Spain. So we were sent from uh, this island to uh, um, the peninsula, which is uh, Saragossa, uh, see Saragossa exactly. And the sadness, and one of the terrible part of this issue is also that even though if you are, I was considered a minor and I'm coming to seek for a better life in Spain, 
I'm not coming to harm anyone. But from the prison where we were, from the island to uh, Malaga, we was with handcuff like this. And that's something I, I still don't understand. Because if you are considered a minor and you have right, and you have right that you are, uh, the international law protects you, uh, why should you put me on a handcuff to trans, uh, transport me from an island to uh, to Malaga? But that's how it is. So once in in Malaga, you might think, okay, okay, you are glad, you are happy, you are able to make it. But remember, you are 17 years. You don't speak Spanish. You don't speak Catalan. You don't know how to read Catalan and Spanish. You don't know anyone there. You don't have even a Peswa in your pocket. No bag, just what you are wearing on the street. In February here, the temperature normally comes between minus, it's between zero to five degrees. You don't have any good clothes. Sleep on the street until it's nobody look at you. You try to speak to people and just nobody just look at your face. And so uh, you stayed outside. You mean you were like a street person for two months? I sleep. I sleep. I stayed on the street for two months. And, and where do you was... where do you go to uh, work? Uh, private. What do you do? How do you manage to stay on the street where you have hundreds and thousands of people? You don't know where you are. You are just like. <laughs> I just sometimes feel it. It's difficult to, to compare. It's just like you are, a tree on the roadside that nobody sees you as a human being. So I guess in Ghana it would be like, a madman or something like that. Yes, exactly. And that's very unfortunate. I mean, but that's like the closest um, comparison. Absolutely. That's just like, you see, you are just a madman that nobody, yeah. you, you just try to say something to everybody, everybody's shaking uh-huh. or something like that. It's like, no, 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 don't come close. It's like, I'm okay. I'm not dead. I'm a, I'm a normal person. So staying that is having that this experience for almost a month and a half until I was so fortunate that finally I just spoke to this lady who finally took me as my, my adopted parents, and which is really a miracle because it never happens. When a child is more than five years, for example, nobody adapts you when you are more than five years. But I was almost 17, I was, I was almost 18 years. And so that's the kind of a miracle too. So you met this, this woman on the streets or how did you meet the woman? I just wake up in the morning. I just slept on the streets. So I wake up in the morning just between, let's say it was around nine o'clock in the morning. And I was just trying to find a, uh, where the sun reaches where so I could get some heat. And something just came to my head and said, oh, she, oh, man, you have to go and talk to this woman. She will help you. I don't know what. I just saw like something, a light on her. So I just ran after her. When she turned back, I spoke in English to her. She couldn't understand anything because she spoke only Spanish and Catalan. But instead of getting afraid of me, she, she just hold my hand like that and we just push, we just stay by the roadside to allow people to, a lot of people was walking by. And the most fortunate point is that the, she lives about 20 minutes from Barcelona. She only lives in Barcelona city. So she never went there on foot. And that was her first time walking, going to that area where I was. So, and 
Because she couldn't understand anything, she took her phone from the pocket and called her husband. The husband speaks English. And asked, she asked me hundreds of questions. And finally, the woman, she, I gave the, back, the phone back to the woman. So she asked me if I was hungry, blah, blah, blah. And I said, yes, I was hungry. She invited me for breakfast. And later on, she gave me her phone, her phone number and directed me how to go to Red Cross in Barcelona. And But the most important thing was the telephone number because I couldn't find there. So finally... I end up contacting back to her and they end up accepting me as my tutors to, until I became 18 years. And that's how I get to know them. And Wow. So this is like a complete stranger and you had been trying to speak to people on the streets. Nobody was minding you. You meet this person and he, she makes extra effort to even understand you. And then, so as you're saying, it's a complete miracle. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but when you were on the road for two years, how were you eating? Two months, I stayed on the streets of Barcelona, and I ate only when people throw bread on, on the rubbish. So, um, I can assure you that life is definitely terrible here. Worst even than in our own country, Ghana. At least some. Everybody will understand you. Whether you speak Wala, Gunja, uh, Dagumba, or anything, you will find someone who understood you. And at least somebody will give you an apple or a mango. Or at least you find some food stuff on somewhere to eat. Here, we don't have that. Thank you. Generally, you know, it's because it's an individualist community. People don't... If they don't know you, they don't know you. That's how it works. Africa, you don't know people, but they invite they you to you. the house. Here... It's very individualism. Yes, it's killing the community, the society. Okay, so now, um, at what point did you, Banasco, know that your brother finally got into Spain? And where were you then? Like now, you had grown. Um, tell us a little about your life at that point. Well, yes, I was grown, but I was not married. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yes, so um, as I said earlier, um, after the encounter in Europe, uh, in Libya, definitely um, because of uh, communication duties was not last this day. So for a very long time, I did not hear from him again. I think the first time I heard from him was then I was in the secondary school. Somewhere, somehow, um, I think my uncle, my big brother, the one we have a cousin, the one who brought the, the recording the last time, I think he was the one. Uh, he kept in contact with what once in a while he has access to a phone. So uh, I think it was through that he called one of my friends who had a phone those days in secondary school. So it was kind of like, ooh, we have a call and it was like a foreign call. I was not, ex- I was not expecting that. And I, I, had to, I had to speak with him again. And it was a very beautiful moment. I, at the time, of course, and uh, knowing how what he went through. Remember, I said earlier that I didn't hear the audio that came in whilst it was in Libya. So for me, uh, it was uh, excitement for me. Yeah, I it was just that, like, ah, my uh, brother has gone abroad. I'm happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was uh, a trophy. <laughs> I mean, the background, the knowledge that we all have about Europe and the fact that Europe is the paradise and all that, you know. So, frankly, it was that kind of a feeling for me. Hmm. So, what happens is now Osman is there 
Osman, I think you've probably got education, all of that. But I want us to fast track because we spent some time into the point where you think back and you realize that this is a problem. Hundreds, thousands of people, probably millions of people are dying. How do we solve this? And then you come up with the idea of starting um, NASCO Feeding Mind. So at what point did you say that, you know what, this has to stop, we have to stop, and I'm going to do something about it? The truth is that the whole issue started, the main idea started the first night I slept in my parents' this particular house. That's, I mean, my parents play today. I came for, today's Sunday, so I'm here for, <laughs> even I came just for, to celebrate my, my birthday with them. And um, the truth is that it's, the first night I slept here, um, I remember the day before I was in the street, very cold, no clothes, no blanket, nothing, just in the street. And in one day before, I was just in this big, nice house. Uh, we have heaters, um, hot water. Um, I wear new clothes. I mean, uh, no dirty clothes, neat clothes. Um, I ate on a table with people who were trying to understood my situation. And finally, my new mom accompanied me to my room. She just put me on bed, just like a five years old boy. <laughs> Kiss my forehead and close the light and go out of the room. You might think maybe that was my best night. But unfortunately, that was the saddest night of my life until then. I cried the whole night. I couldn't even sleep just for one minute. The question is, why have, what have I done wrong to deserve this horrible experience? If definitely this family were here waiting for me, what, what is the need to, have, to go through this terrible experience? Wouldn't, they, wouldn't it could be in a different manner that they just went to Ghana, go to Ghana for tourism or anything? They meet me and brought me here. Why do I have to pass through all this journey, finally meet them? So definitely, I cried the whole night until the next morning. I thought, I remember, I get to the point that, yes, there's no need for you to be crying, asking why and why and why. Just ask, what can you do with all this experience you've acquired in these five horrible years? So I get to the point that the best I could do was, first, being the voice of all the colleagues who died on the way and those who keep on dying every day in this journey. And secondly, do something in the back and the origin to avoid future victims to fall into this trap. So yes, when I, I think the idea of creating NASCAR Feeding Minds, I had the idea in this first night I slept in my parents' place. And of course, the best I could do was my contact with my younger brother, Vanasco, trying to let him understand the reality, even though he's fascinated that his brother is in, is in Europe and he's, feel, he's feeling temples that he will also be going to Europe some, some day. I did all at my best to let him understood that yes, the really huge paradise, wonderful paradise is in his head. It's a matter of feeding his mind, not the stomach. And he will therefore create a best future for himself in Ghana. No place like home. So definitely I really insisted on the idea until he understood that what I was telling him was really, really important. And of course he didn't take it for a joke he took it very seriously, education, and he was able, I was able to support him the little I could, and he became um, successful in education, and finally we tried to extrapolate the idea of feeding 
his mind to get his future in Ghana to more other young people. So definitely that's how the idea started. And of course, I assume the responsibility that I'm the Minister of Education of Ghana. I automatically <laughs> renamed myself the Minister of Education of my country that time because I still remember Banaskude, how tough it was for us to get the meeting with the Department of Education to try to expose our idea of creating computer labs so children could get access to education and will not fall to the trap of this human trafficking the way I did. And it wasn't easy. We, it was almost impossible. So finally, we understood that, yes, if I really want to make it happen, I need to finance that. I'm the president of my community. I'm the, you know, uh, the secretary general of my, my uh, United Nations. So I think this, this, the idea try to avoid criticizing others, putting the sort of problems on others, assume our responsibility, each and every one of you, and do the little we can, but let's make it happen. So yes, that's the simple summarization of how NASCO uh, started and we financed it by ourselves. We paid the teachers ourselves from the first school we started. That was almost 10 years now. I still remember when we went to the Chiman Ahmadiyya school after three months, paying for the tables, doing everything. Finally, they refused to sign the final document because they were afraid that computer was going to spoil their children. But I don't know whether you remember about this topic, and it was really terrible for us. But we spent almost $2,000 that time, and finally they refused to sign the final document. So we have to pack our equipments, and we went to the North Solar uh, constituency, and finally San Augustine Junior High School accepted our proposal, and we started the first computer lab. So, so the funny thing is that <laughs> the first community to receive computer materials and equipment just to make sure that you are educated and rejected it because they thought computers were a bad thing. <laughs> we're going to spoil their children. Banasco know very well about that. He was my, I was here, so Banasco was my counterpart in Ghana. He used to go for the meetings and all that. Sometimes I try to call when he's in the meeting, but finally I remember still when we, our intent to get contact the Minister of Education and it was terrible and finally in the Techiman Ahmadiyya school they refused finally they refused to sign the documents wow but Banasco that time you were still young I mean you were probably in your first year in university how were you able to juggle all of that and what was the experience like like leading basically leading the organization <laughs> um, um, I remember one time I made a remark in Solar that um, I think I have been one of the number one customers of OE transport flying Accra and uh, Wild Road, uh, because I think that I've boarded that car than any other passenger on that road. Um, <laughs> if you ask all my friends at Legon Chief Moment and Co, they'll tell you that almost every Friday evening I went to Solar around that time. That was around 2010-11. Almost every Friday I leave Accra and, uh, and get on to OE through our drive-thru out the night and arrive in Solar on Saturday in the morning. So I do all the meetings on Saturdays, a Sunday, do the works. And on Sunday evening, I return uh, back to Accra, arrive in Accra on Monday morning and go for lectures. I remember I had a sociology 730 class. So, I mean, but it was, it was an exciting uh, moment for me. I didn't feel stressed. I didn't. And of course, funny enough, when I got to level 300, I was contesting as judicial executive. And around that time, a lot of my friends were like, hey, but nice, could you do? Who could you do? 
So because almost every Friday I went to Seoul after the top side, I was going to do juju for my elections on campus, you know. <laughs> so to the lot of them think that oh, we are doing quite well and they are impressed and all that and they forget all those things that we went through. But for me, like I said, I didn't think about the risk of doing or boarding cars every now and then every week up and down. I didn't think about um whether I was getting any immediate rewards, whether I was being paid. I mean, I remember those days Usman didn't give me money specifically for my travels. He just gave me money for my upkeep in school and we used that as part to go to sell and all that. No reward, no benefits, no, we were not sure how it was going to turn out. I mean, we didn't have a business plan, a business model of scaling up and how it was going to grow and all that. We just did it out of passion. We're just excited about it. We're just doing it and we just hoped that it was going to get better. <laughs> but Nasco. did. Okay, yeah, but ask, I have a question in terms of the vision and the passion you mentioned. I mean, there's a very direct uh, experience that Usman has already described where his passion is coming from. So in terms, like, how did that come to you? Was it through the story of Usman or do you have other experiences that, uh, yeah, kind of invoke that passion for your vision? Um, well, I think that is more biological uh, because he's my direct brother. I grew up watching him. Uh, I did almost all the things he did uh, back at the village. And if you like better, I remember he played football <laughs> at the local, at, at the village level. And uh, I played better than he did at the village level. He was a good student. And I remember I became better than he was in school. So kind of like I had an opportunity to learn from someone. I was looking up to someone. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, when he arrived in Europe, of course, I mentioned that I also wanted to go to Europe. He convinced me and I had no option than to believe in him because he had always guided me and given me the right um, opportunity. So it wasn't so mm -hmm. difficult uh, doing what we had to do. And so I think perhaps maybe it was just out of an innate enthusiasm and not specifically anything ahead that you were chasing, but you would, you, we just believed that we were doing something uh, worth, that was worth it. And uh, we did it with all the excitement and the energy that it came with. Yeah, so Banasco, we know you've done a lot with NASCO because people don't understand how big this organization is. So tell us some of the things that NASCO has done, especially under your leadership, because you are the one who has been operationalizing all these things. So we, I mean, I personally have worked with you, so I know you've done works in education, in um, livelihood, but tell us the details. What have you done? How many schools um, with ICT centers have you built? How many lives have you changed? Uh, well, that, uh, I believe that we have done enormously well. Uh, especially in the area of ICT literacy. And I think that one of the reasons we chose ICT literacy is because of its essence in, 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 our, in our era. Um, if you take a look at the various industrial revolutions, when we started, of course, they were in the ICT um, era. And uh, I think that it was not out of place that we had to contribute in that spectrum to offer students in our area the opportunity to have access to ICT literacy by providing uh, digital tools. Um, so as I speak with you, we have um, established 11 ICT centers, uh, 741 schools. Now, when I say 741 schools, what it means is that we have sometimes three or four different schools attending their ICT lessons in one particular center. So we normally establish the center in a school that is of close proximity with uh, other schools so that they can all have access 
to computer studies in that particular lab. Um, I think that uh, our effort has been recognized globally. In 2017, we received an award from the International Telecommunications Union in Geneva, Switzerland, as an ICT champion. Uh, I think that it's not necessarily because they think that we have done something so big, but the model that we run and the area that we operate from. And uh, for me, it, is, it was one beautiful moment for us to know that what we're doing has been recognized and is being appreciated by people all around the world. I mean, directly, when you go back to the solar area, our dream has always been to um, make our area an oasis of technology in the northern part of Ghana. And I'm glad that through our interventions, uh, more than 11,000 students have passed through our centers. Uh, they have had um, direct access to computers, at least at the elementary level. It has given them some exposure and uh, has put, in, put on some importance on ICT literacy and, of course, ushering all of us into the fourth industrial revolution of digitization. So I believe that uh, intervention has been great. We are happy with what we have done, and um, we are doing more. We create, we are at the moment getting a lot of partnerships from global brands. Cisco has partnered us. It has supported us to uh, install internet, a satellite internet connection on all our computer labs. As I speak with you, all our computer labs are connected to a satellite internet. So you can imagine uh, kids from uh, the rural part of our country having access to the internet. It's amazing. I mean, some of them get to the lab, they don't know what to do, but they are just super excited. I mean, so they are just excited that they have computers and they have internet. So they are, they are, it has boosted their confidence in going to school. And some of our records include uh, increase in enrollment and, of course, the students' participation and um, understanding of various subject matters has increased. So for us, uh, it is a beautiful feeling and we are motivated and challenged at the same time to continue to do more. Yeah, and I, I will personally add, because I have worked with NASCO, in some projects that we have projects about getting medical devices for hospitals we are doing multiple screenings we're talking about um agricultural products we're talking about sustainability so planting of trees i mean several thousands of trees have been planted we're talking about livelihood projects i know that recently the b and annie training for women actually women who have um um, lost their husbands and you know in the northern part of region of Ghana that is like a very terrible situation to be in almost similar to what Osman in. they are very ostracized no one cares about them training was done and now those bees have been um, the, those the honey from the bees have been sold so you know these are like great things that have been done there but Osman you are making an attempt to take your story global through books you've written can you tell us about the books you've written Yes, uh, thank you, Isaac. Um, yes, the truth was that I realized that that was 2019. Um, no, 2018, before I was, the idea of NASCO ICT, NASCO Feeding Minds, was getting acknowledged by the whole Barcelona and areas. So people invite me for conferences, talk to students, because I think I get here 2005. I don't speak Catalan, no Spanish. I don't read Spanish, I don't read Catalan. In only six years, I was capable to overcome all the education system in Spain and get to university. I studied chemistry for two years in the University of Barcelona, basically. And all the same time, I have to work 40 hours every week <laughs> compared to the school. So it was definitely a hard 
situation. So, um, but I was so excited and had an access to education that I was capable to overcome that. And for a lot of hundreds and thousands of teachers and students around uh, here, people realized that definitely I was a real example for more other students to get to know that, yes, they, uh, they can definitely make change if they really will and work hard for it. But this invitations to schools and conferences, universities, etc., was getting quite known. And, of course, it was complex for me to come, come uh, I mean, convert that with my working hours. So I had to stop working as a bicycle mechanic, as I used to do before. And by so, I was almost, let's say, jobless between 2018 2019. So that was a specific time who, which I took to really make some kind of personal reflections. And I get to the point that the best I could do was not only going to schools, universities, companies, giving conferences, but rather converting this story into a book whereby all my messages that I normally give in the conferences can be written in a book so people around the whole country could also read it and I get acknowledgement about what the ordeal was. So my Facebook was published in 19 which is called um, a trip to um, white man's country, where we narrate into details the situation of the ordeal. And the book was so well uh, rewarded that finally I had to publish the second part of the book. That, okay, Usman, yes, the trip was terrible, but how did you make it? Once in, a, in Spain, you don't speak Spanish, you don't speak like, how do you make all this effort to overcome all the education system and get integrated so well in the Spanish community. And because none of your colleagues or people who normally comes with migrants as you are capable to make just 5% of what you've achieved. So tell us how it is. So that's how the second book was also published last year, which is living in the white man's country. How does a migrant live in a white man's country? And fortunately, uh, the book was well uh, accepted into the stand that Amazon US requested for the right of my book to translate it into English. So after a lot of negotiations, finally we were capable to get to an agreement. The book is translated into English and the 1st of March, it will be published in the whole US, Canada, and UK. So definitely, I'm still. I mean, Amazon on. is huge. I mean, Amazon <laughs> is huge. So we are talking about a book that is going to be in Northern America. I mean, the whole of Northern America. Um, so if you're listening, um, the book again is um, the title is Usman. Uh, the title, title, the Spanish title. Yeah, okay, yes. when we translated it to English, we had to can change the title. Mm-hmm. So in English, the Facebook is called North to paradise ah, north to paradise okay <laughs> that's a very interesting title yeah so this is going on um but then you decide that there is even more to be done so there's a transition from the non-profit yes you are trying to do that but what if the skills of these people that they are getting in this harsh condition where people are not getting jobs right 
it will, will still become redundant. So why don't we build another company and then try to integrate um, people into it? So that's the share to that about Nasco is right now. Can you tell us about that thinking around starting Nasco Tech and building a community of people that you guys have trained and given them employment to um, um, educational opportunities, sorry, job opportunities in Europe? Yes, the idea, I find it very simple. I know very well that for hundreds of people is the complex, but for me and for us, when I ask myself, I think we really get to understand very easily that the truth is that <laughs> every corner, every department of government department in Europe, they are worried about migrants, migration. Migration this, migration that, migration here, migration there. But as a matter of fact, it seems like they don't know or they don't, they're not doing anything to really give, give a good solution to it. And I look at it that it's very simple. If you send people are coming to your country and you don't, they are coming to look for jobs mainly. So if you don't want them to come or you think it's really, you want to support, definitely you really think that you want to help to avoid the deadly route they, they pass through to come to your country. We just transfer the work opportunity to their countries too. You said, okay, no, they are not well prepared to do that work. Who in Spanish we said, nadie nace aprendido. Simple means that nobody born excellent or born engineers, and they are not, you are not born engineer, you learn to be an engineer. You are not born a doctor, you learn to be a doctor. You study to be a doctor. So it, don't tell me they are not. They are not. They don't know how to work, do the work. No, you have to teach them. You are simple, just like yourself. You went to school. You learned how to be an engineer. You learned how to be a pilot, and now you are a pilot. So if they didn't know how to do it, teach them. Very simple as that. So I thought that was the main focus and our main mission. Okay, we knew very well that people can't here for uh, seeking for work. So. And they fell in human trafficking because of lack of information, just like myself, Musa, Sabashimi, and all my guys who died on the way. So, okay, we create computer schools. We give access to youth to get access to this, uh, to be part of this digital, fourth digital revolution. So once they get uh, the knowledge, then if you don't give them a work opportunity, they will still struggle to go out of the country. So let's create, let's close the cycle, create a work opportunity for them to be able to work in Ghana without risking their life, without paying money to any trafficker. They will therefore receive good salaries in their own country, pay for their children's school fees, their brothers help pay for their uh, hospital issues. And it's a matter of investing in the Ghanaian economy which is something I think is fundamental. We have people, talented people, strong, young, and capable to work. Why want to create companies so they can work in their country and contribute in the, in the, in the growing of their, 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 the economy of the country? So the main issue is finding, seeking for mechanisms to create companies, startups, that definitely give work opportunity, jobs to your youth in Ghana to be able to contribute in the economy of Ghana. And how is that going, Balasco? At the end, because you are the one who's running Nasco Tech Two in Ghana. 
Yes, of, um, of course, like Osman is saying, um, you see, actually, the thing is that um, to warn people is not enough. The best way to direct people is not to say, hey, don't go, but to say, use this path. I think people, um, people become more responsive if you give them alternatives than to prevent them. So uh, our approach beyond sensitization, hey, don't go to you know, through the uh, unapproved route, it's dangerous and all that. People still go anyway. I remember uh, I chanced on a documentary on YouTube uh, during the time this whole uh, slavery in Libya came up. And uh, one young man said, um, well, now he has heard about how dangerous a trip is. But he'll go anyway, because if he sits back home, he'll be hungry and die. So he thinks that it's better to uh, give himself the chance to make a good life than to sit down and die, you know. So like Osman said, so we decided to do, uh, to offer opportunities in the area of ICT literacy education. Now, after so many years of educating people, what do you have to do? You still have to create opportunities to make use of the knowledge that they have acquired. So NASCO Tech is that enterprise that um, makes uses of uh, the students that we have trained to work for European companies by closing the cycle. And I believe that um, that has been a win-win for all of us. I mean, a lot of uh, Spanish companies have helped us in establishing these computer labs. Now we are asking them that, okay, give us work and we have workforce that can work for you. And uh, Interestingly, doing this gives uh, me an impression that, wow, these guys, these white people at the beginning will think that, oh, possibly these uh, new employees will not be good enough. So they start to give us uh, very little jobs. And they get so impressed to uh, know the, uh, the level of uh, expertise that these young guys have to offer, you know. So uh, I, I know Usman uses this line a lot, that talent has no color. And what we have been doing really proves to uh, all our uh, clients that, yes, indeed, we have very dedicated, well-motivated, and very talented young people to, uh, to do stuff with. And I can say that it's been good. It's been... Uh, exciting, especially uh, looking at the situation that we have in Ghana, the high rate of unemployment. If you are able to offer employment to somebody, they are so excited and they are so grateful to you. Their family now depends on the salaries that you give to them. They're also able to... So, I mean, you sit back and you realize that out of that, about some 10 people that you are paying, they are taking care of that 10 people multiplies into like 100 people dependent on a solution that you have thought of a solution that you have brought in and it's so fulfilling and so exciting and we are hopeful that uh, we will grow and be able to do much more i mean yeah. we can talk about a lot of things <laughs> yeah you can speak daniel yeah i mean i'm i had two questions that have been on my mind for a bit and now banasco spoke to it to an extent and <laughs> i know that question is to an extent could be a little bit provocative but i'm sure you have experienced, for instance, when you talk to youth and you would advise them on certain things and they would kind of tell you that maybe you are now talking like that because you are in a certain position. And they would probably use somebody like you, Usman, as an example for, mm -hmm. I'm sure you have encountered that, as an, as a, an example of, uh, but it did not pay off based on 
your success. Of course, you have already, I say provocative because in this talk, you have already elaborated on some of the things and the surrounding things that happened and to the many that did not survive. But what do you say to someone with a limited perspective and kind of the portray that we get sometimes in media and even through our own narratives that we actually create? What would you tell someone like that? Yes, that's uh, one of the questions I was expecting. I really expected it because um, in most cases, people just say, okay, Usman, now you are okay. You are wearing your suit and tie in a white man's country. You are with white people up and down. You are telling us not to go. Um, I remember my first conference I delivered in Ghana, especially in the senior, senior high school in Tona, one of the communities. And I went, I was with an organization who normally try to support illegal, but not illegally, I mean, not under the law. They operate under the law because definitely the European law doesn't allow you to go and rescue migrants who are illegal on the street, uh, on the water. But this organization, they, they, a couple of friends get, get together, get a boat and normally um, try to help people, some, some of the boats that's get into a, a serious situation. So we went to Ghana. I told them, if definitely you want to support, help give a solution to migration, come down and see what I'm doing there. The solution is not in the water, but, the, but rather in the origin of the problem. So they came and, of course, we organized some couple of conferences in schools and that. And I still remember this girl, this guy stood up and said, his first question was, Usman, now you are okay. You are coming here with five people up and down. You're telling us to go. But you are there. Why are you coming back? And of course, I was expecting that question, but I didn't prepared. I wasn't prepared that I would not have to answer that question. There was one young lady, 16 years old uh, lady, stood up and said, yes, probably it might seem controversy that Usman is now there and okay and working with white people up and down. But the truth is that look at your surroundings or let's look at our surroundings how many people from this community have left to europe some of most of them we didn't know anything about them but we know that some of them are alive and they've came back those who have went and came back what have they done one buy land construction big house that they will never stay in get married get uh, kids when they come for the next time that woman is old or it's not ni uh, nice again so she get they get to marry an another different girl and Usman when he came here he don't even have a house to sleep all what he done is schools creating schools for you and me to have access to so maybe instead of accusing Usman that he's okay we need to compare our surroundings. I promise you, I even cried. I wasn't expecting that answer from that girl. So, yes, the same thing, the same answer I'll give you. Probably, I'm okay, I'm doing well, but look at my surroundings. I, if it was only to satisfy my needs, I wouldn't be creating computer school for, for schools I never stepped in. I knew very well I'm here not just because of myself. I was capable to survive, to be able to assist and support the others. Yeah. I not think, only my family, but the others in general. Yeah. 
but I think that uh, I mean I think that shines true that like there is a bigger purpose for what you are doing and I think prior you mentioned something about uh, individualism is killing their society and to an extent when you said that I somehow felt as if you even want to take part of that responsibility up on you and see what you can contribute towards that I don't know if I'm on the wrong path or I got this wrong but what what about that you are absolutely right you are absolutely right sometimes i used to say that i'm a kind of person that i was so fortunate to live in different centuries at the same time i said sometimes in different uh, several uh, interviews in, in here in spain that i've left i've lived in the 15th century i've lived in the 19th century and the 21st century at the same time Sometimes it might be tricky to understand, but easy. Because in my village, for example, where I was born, I can only compare it that to the 15th century. I was in Libya for four years. I can assure you that Libya is just like the 19th century. And being here in Spain, Barcelona is like the 21st century at the same time. So definitely I'm so capable to learn from these different, different cultures and situations at the same time. So I can therefore extract the good news or the good part of these different different experiences and the truth is that yes i have seen in the 21st century in the modern world in spain here what is good and what's not so nice and i think i can prove to you that individualism is killing the western world here and i think i'm quite lucky to have lived in the ghana and being a ghanian i had we have values that most Europeans will pay thousands and billions of euros to be able to have that for their people. And we have that. We really have very uh, important values that now in the Western world, they don't have it. So yes, I have lived in this and I think um, my, my, one of my, my worries and my mission is to be able to extract the good experiences in this community and then share it to uh, our Ghana, our society in Ghana to make our people uh, better than uh, what we've been, we've been. And I know very well that our children will be better than what we have lived in. We can create a better life for them together, of course. Not, this is it's, uh, it's globally. You have to think globally, act locally, of course, but it's not about one person. I think it's a global work, but we need to acknowledge that, yes, we don't have to put only the, uh, the pressure on the government to come and fix the country. You is the president. Each and every one of us, we are the president. We need to fix the part of the country that belongs to us. Yeah, so I was like, on concluding notes, um, what is the next evolution, right, for NASCO Tech and for NASCO Feeding Minds? Uh, well, we are hopeful that uh, we'll be able to scale up, we'll be able to train many more young people because we notice that um, we're getting um, job offers, but we are unable to match uh, some of our candidates to those jobs because their skills levels are still low. So it means that we still have um, quite a way to go to offer some specific trainings um, to augment the skills of some of our students to be able to match up with the jobs that are being given. And I also think that, yes, as the digitization drive still uh, source on, 
uh, we'll be able to form the necessary synergies with a lot of other young people. I'm glad that uh, I work with you on a lot of things. Uh, we'll be able to find the right partnerships, the right investments, and the right opportunities to continue to create more opportunities. So, I mean, we are so grateful to all those who have supported us so far, and we believe that we still have the journey to, um, to, to progress on with all our partners and many more people who are passionate about uh, causing real change in the world. Yeah. And what about you, Osman? What are your concluding thoughts? <laughs> no, it's very simple. I think it's Vanessa have said all, but definitely we are still on negotiations with one of the biggest companies here in Spain for um, digital, digital, digitalization called um, Singular, the owner, the president and director in general, the founder himself came to Ghana. I came, I brought him in Ghana, that was last September, uh, to see, to uh, to test our our students himself to acknowledge the level of uh, uh, knowledge, the level of talent people has there, and he's really uh, moved to be able to make it one of the biggest investments we are expecting to be concluded by the end of this month. So I think definitely we are really hoping to, ex- uh, I mean, accelerate this impact to more young people back home to be able to work from Ghana. So I'm um, I'm really really. Um, fascinated about the the interest of investing in Nascotech from especially uh, Singular and other companies who are also willing to take part in this project. And I only want you, each and every one of us who are anyone who is listening to me this morning or this afternoon, should take in, take note that um, it's very important to acknowledge the fact that. We are all here to cooperate, to do something. We are not just here in this world to come and pass and nobody will remember about what we've done, but we are really here to do something for those who are coming, our younger ones who is coming back. So definitely, if, as Martin Lubitakin said, if you can't fly, remember, you can always run. If you can't run, you can walk. If not, keep growing, but always keep moving to be the change you want to see in your community, your country, in the world as a whole. You know, we can keep on going. We can keep on talking about Banasco's exploits, Osman's exploits. I mean, there are new projects. There's the Refit Africa project. That is an energy project that we even didn't talk about. And Banasco has gone into politics, trying to scale the impact, etc. But we don't have time for that. What I would say is that anybody who is listening now can go to nascoict.org, which is the website for Nasco Feeding Mines. And look up the work they are doing. You can donate. You can get in touch with them on LinkedIn or wherever. But this is the story of people who are actually changing people, young people who are at the helm of the African transformation. That is what Change Africa podcast is about. So thank you very much for being with us. Um, I don't know if you, Daniel, you have any concluding notes, but this is one of the best conversations I've had. It's in-depth and we are, we've gone for a very long time. Um, I don't know if you have anything to say. I think I would just repeat one last thing from Usman because I experienced the other way. I grew up in Europe, in Switzerland, and then came to Ghana and basically had my majority of my working experience. So the sentence that uh, Western societies or Western leaders would pay billions for their citizenship to have values that Ghanaians have. I think that's a very valuable statement and something very deep or counterintuitive to be within in Ghana. And it took me personally ages to kind of be able to see that. So I think I would just reiterate that and how important that is for change in Africa.
yeah so this has been the change africa podcast thank you very much we'll bring you back another exciting conversation with change leaders who are transforming africa